Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. In what can only be described as very on-brand for the year 2020, we are producing a post-election show without an official winner of the presidential election. What we do know, however, is that the president, as he's done throughout the fall, is falsely attacking the results, claiming with no evidence that there has been widespread fraud. Many of his supporters are protesting outside of state election offices, echoing these false claims. What we also know is that of the states that have been called by the AP, Biden currently leads the Electoral College 264 to 214. Biden is also leading the popular vote by almost 4 million votes. It's also looking likely that control of the Senate will come down to Georgia, where two Senate races are headed to January 5th runoffs. And in the House, a predicted blue wave failed to materialize, leaving Democrats with a very narrow majority. Joining me to discuss all of this and more, Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent at Politico, Sahil Kapoor, national political reporter for NBC News, and Claire Malone, senior politics writer at 538. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Amy. Hi. Hey, Tim, I'm going to start with you, uh, and I want you to... um, reply to this tweet that you put out. You, This is what you said soon after the president left the briefing room Thursday night where he made multiple false claims about the election process. You said, not sure how anyone can crack jokes right now. We cannot begin to fathom how much damage that speech will do to the long-term health and stability of our country. I mean, if you spend all your time around people who won't believe a word of what Trump just said, good for you. But that's not the real world. 70 million people just voted for a man who insists that our elections are rigged. Many of those people believe him. It's harrowing. Yeah, it is harrowing, Amy. And, and, um, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic or hysterical about any of this, but uh, I know a lot of people who believe this. Um, I have friends and family members who believe this, who you know, last night and today are texting me and writing on their Facebook walls and insisting that this election has been stolen and that their votes have been cheated and that this whole system is rigged. Listen, you know, I wrote I wrote a, a magazine piece about this last week um, for Politico sort of summarizing, you know, 12 months of talking with voters about their concerns uh, with the electoral process. And I've been really astounded to realize just how much distrust and lack of confidence there really is in the system and how many people were sort of already looking for a reason to believe that, uh, that the ballot box is illegitimate. And Trump has now used the credibility of the presidency to tell those people that they're right and 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 to convince others that they should fall in line and that they should uh, wake up and 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 realize that uh, that this country they're living in is just little more than a banana republic and um, at the end of the day we talk so much about institutional decline in this country whether it's you know organized religion or public education or major league baseball you name it uh we've seen polling over 40 years to show that confidence in these institutions uh the media government 
all of it, that it's just fallen across the board. But there's one institution that really matters at the end of the day in this country, and it's the ballot box. It's the one institution that that separates order from chaos, and it is just under a frontal assault right now from the president. So, Hill, I want you to weigh in on this, too, because you spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill and theoretically, again, talk about another institution that could stand up and protect the integrity of this process would be those elected leaders who can say, you know what, Mr. President, this has to stop. And yet I saw many of them, many Republicans go on Fox News the other night, continuing to uh, echo some of these statements the president's making. What's going to happen, do you think? It's a range of reaction, Amy, from uh, congressional Republicans. Last night on Fox, you had Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Lindsey Graham, both staunch allies of the president, sort of echo his claims, as you pointed out, about um, shadiness or illegitimacy or questions they have about the validity of what's going on. It's extremely unusual. I don't think any of us have seen this in any of our lifetimes, a president or a presidential candidate mount this kind of uh, forceful attack on the validity of an election. Even, you know, people like Al Gore and Hillary Clinton, who won the popular vote, lost the electoral vote, they conceded. They conceded, they backed off and said, this is our president now, we have to give that person a chance. And the reason this resonates is that President Trump has cultivated a very loyal base of supporters who believes him over anyone else. I was at one of his rallies in Arizona, a tight state, last week in the Phoenix area. And I spoke to dozens of his supporters and, and asked them about his claims about illegitimacy in the election. To a person, they all believed him that if he loses, there would be some foul play at work. So this has this has really struck a chord and it illustrates the extent to which Joe Biden, if he does become president elect, is still going to be governing in some ways Trump's America. Going to be governing right. a country where a lot of people don't accept the legitimacy of his uh, potential election. And those are uncharted waters. We've never seen anything like that before. Right. Even after 2000, when, you know, there were a lot of Democrats who believed that the Supreme Court stole the election from Al Gore. They didn't like uh, the fact that George Bush was in the office, but they didn't believe that the process of voting in and of itself was illegitimate. That's where it seems like we're heading into dangerous waters. And and Claire, speaking of legitimacy and undermining, et cetera, you know, the other thing that's coming under attack, of course, is the polling and the prediction business that – you know, all of the data showed us that this wasn't going to be a close race, that Democrats were going to build on their lead in the House. And there was this blue wave that was going to, you know, repudiate uh, the president and his and his first term that didn't come to pass. So uh, what do you think happened ultimately with the the polling? And, and is the polling industry now as many are, are have been doing for a while now, <laughs> uh, writing their obituaries, uh, is it premature? I think it's still a little premature, but certainly there are states like Florida that um, were a surprise to a lot of people and that um, the president's support among, um, you know, Hispanic voters, yes, Cubans in Florida are more conservative, but Hispanic voters all over seem to have um, potentially, according to kind of early data, maybe liked him more than we than uh, polls had thought. 
I will say the exit polls were not really touching this year because of complications from the pandemic. So we kind of have to wait for the data. Yeah. So we're in a bit of a, poli uh, a polling holding pattern, <laughs> but, but certainly, I mean, you know, um, if you look at, you know, the president could still lose by quite a bit. I think the, the popular vote, he could potentially lose by maybe 7 million, which is quite stunning. Um, but obviously the Republicans did much better in holding, let's say, House seats than I think a lot of people thought. And I right. think that brings up a larger question of, um, is America more liberal or conservative than we thought, right? That's kind of the big existential question people are going to be asking. And do people actually like uh, Trumpism maybe without Trump attack attached to it? Did Trump go too far with his COVID response? But people actually like the message that they're getting from down ballot GOP candidates to go to some of that institutional distrust that that Tim was talking about. Uh, the idea that people like politicians who are you know telling it like it is, not being politically correct, whatever it is. I think there's a lot to unpack in this in this election, and we are just starting to see results. Yeah. And it seems like that's also what happens when you get a record number of people voting. I mean, we're we're hitting a 100 a year high in terms of turnout. And so what's interesting to me is theoretically, the polls could have been more predictive, right? I mean, the more people you have voting, the less important it is to have likely voter screens, all those things that try to, you know, get at who's not voting. Um and so it seems like we're still going to have this debate, Claire, for a while about the people, whether we want to call them, quote unquote, shy Trump voters or just the people who seem to be getting missed in the way we poll. Yeah, I mean, Trump and this, you know, we, we talked a lot about in 2016, how his rallies were on TV and he really turned people out. I think, you know, in some ways what you saw in 2020 is just a deepening of President Trump's support. Um, I keep on going back to uh, Lorain County in Northeast Ohio, which Hillary Clinton won in 2016, but which Donald Trump won in 2020. And, you know, everyone was talking the, the you know, the big game of Joe Biden is going to win back these disaffected Trump voters. Well, in some instances, Trump only deepened his support in Trump country, right? That, that people were jazzed and excited. And maybe those people had fallen outside of, you know, what pollsters call the universe of likely voters, right? They maybe they didn't vote in the midterms, but they felt compelled in 2020 to turn out and vote for the president because partisanship has touched everything in American life, right? From mask wearing to name a thing, you know, and and it's and it's probably partisan. Maybe Dolly Parton and hating the airlines aren't partisan, but that's about it. <laughs> and so I think like that is a that is a huge thing to think about as as we unpack this in the past couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, you know, Ann Selzer, who's um, an Iowa pollster, got a lot of, uh, you know, flack in the in the days before the election for putting out a poll that seemed to everyone to be super duper off. And it was not. So, uh, yes, the polling industry certainly has a lot of, of soul searching. And, you know, a lot of it is just with the changing um, undulations of modern life. You right. probably don't pick up your cell phone if you don't see a, a number, you know. I want to go to again to Capitol Hill and speaking of the sort of reckoning ahead of us uh, after this election, that in the House especially, there's been a lot of finger pointing about sort of what went wrong, that Democrats were going to expand their majority, at least the polls suggested that, by a significant number. Now they're they're barely hanging on. And, and this week there was a very contentious call among members of the Democratic caucus with leadership with moderates 
accusing the party of moving too far to the left and imperiling them. I mean, where do where do Democrats in the House go from here? I expect, Amy, we'll see a vigorous debate between uh, those centrists who argue that people, you know, Democrats on the left uh, erred by raising issues like single payer health care or uh, kind of embracing, in some cases, the, the defund the police calls. Who, you know, some some uh, Democratic members blame them for for the reason the Democrats lost. And you're going to see uh, progressives also make the case that Democrats seem to have a sharper populist message, more pocketbook message. That right. the reason they lose is that they don't really give people a reason to vote for them. That they're Republican light. So I suspect there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of that going on in the Democratic Party because they did vastly underperform expectations. Right. Sahil, speaking of unfinished business, the Senate. Control, it looks like, may end up coming down to runoff elections in Georgia, um, that they they have a unique situation where there are actually two Senate races in that state this year, one to fill uh, the the seat of a retiring or, I'm sorry, a member who resigned early, uh, and the other is a regular election. Can you talk about what the expectations are? for Georgia going forward. Um, We know at this moment we're speaking, Joe Biden is leading in the state by a very narrow margin. It's pretty clear that the state is incredibly close, evenly divided. And what do you think this tells us, if anything, about what a runoff could look like? Well, it tells us that Georgia is about to become the center of the political universe. For sure. <laughs> and, uh, the fact that two seats are going to be decided, the fact that both seats are going to determine which party controls the majority in the Senate is of absolutely enormous significance and consequence. I mean, you have the political fact that uh, Georgia and the Atlanta metro area is ground zero for the suburban shift that have kind of realigned the map in some ways. It's unclear if that will continue um, after, you know, post-Trump, if he is, in fact, defeated uh, or if there will be some kind of snapback to Republicans. I think it really depends on which direction the party goes. If it moves in a, a Trumpier direction, which I, I suspect is more likely than not, then the trends will continue. If it uh, moves, if it pulls back from that, then we'll see the opposite. As far as the Senate goes, uh, I, it's hard to overstate how big a difference there would be between a Senate led by Mitch McConnell and a Senate led by Chuck Schumer for uh, a potential President Joe Biden's agenda. Everything he has talked about in terms of legislation, the big, you know, the big plans he has from healthcare to immigration to climate change, the infrastructure, all of those are dead on arrival in a Senate led by Mitch McConnell. And the idea that some Democrats have that they might be able to pressure him and move him uh, to put things on the floor that progressives want to do, I just don't think they understand how he works, that he is utterly immune to pressure from progressives and from Democrats. So between that and there's also the fact that, you know, Joe Biden would have to think twice about everyone he tries to appoint to a cabinet position, knowing that McConnell would have a pocket veto on that. What is McConnell going to do about uh, potential President Biden's judicial appointments? We saw he was very comfortable grinding the last Democratic president's judicial appointments to a halt, including one to the Supreme Court. Does he allow Joe Biden to appoint much of any judges? Does he demand that they be of a certain type? Um, Whereas on the other hand, if you have Chuck Schumer, that is a Biden ally. He will likely support Biden's agenda on all of these fronts. So Georgia voters are going to decide whether... um, whether they want McConnell or whether they want Schumer to run the Senate. Oh, boy. Yes, that is the center of the political universe. Everybody, I'm sure, already camping out there. Not a bad place to have to spend November and December, though. It's, it's a nice place. Did we all rent a house in Savannah? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind being there. Tim, let's go uh, to that, the map in general. And uh, you 
are in Michigan, live in Michigan. You've been spending a lot of time going through the so-called sort of blue wall states, the ones that flipped from the Democrats in 2016 to Trump. And now it looks as if Biden is going to win all three of those states, though by a very narrow margin. So what changed between 2016 and 2020? Well, at the risk of being reductive, Amy, I would probably just identify three major things. I think first, you have to look at the president's bleeding of suburban white support, particularly in your sort of traditional wealthy white conservative suburbs, right? Like not not some of the more diverse suburbs in in. Uh, you know, in, in Bucks and Montgomery or, or even in, like in Oakland County necessarily. I'll give you an example. In Livingston County, uh, Michigan, which is sort of the exurbs of Detroit, bedroom communities of Ann Arbor, um, this is a staunchly conservative area. President Trump won it by 30 points in 2016. And the expectation was that even while he was going to withstand some suburban losses in Oakland County, which uh, is sort of a different animal politically, that he would need to sort of solidify that margin or stick pretty close to that 30 point margin in Livingston County. Uh, But he didn't. Uh, President Trump carried Livingston County by 22 and a half points. Now, losing seven and a half points in one county might not seem like the end of the world, but obviously this is a game of margins and those margins add up. And what you saw in the wow counties around Milwaukee was a similar story. Uh, you know, the, the, the president performed so well in, in Waukesha and Washington and Ozaki counties in 2016, but there was also a real reason to believe that he might be able to do a little bit better because the third party vote share for Gary Johnson was really high in those counties. And the president, for all the talk of him, of his suburban support slipping, uh, I know that his team was really focused on those three counties, but in all three of those counties, his vote share slipped. And in fact, in in Waukesha and Ozaukee specifically, it slipped by quite a bit. I think it slipped by seven or eight points in both of those counties. So again, these things add up. So the, so the president losing support in those wealthy white suburbs in the Midwest was was crucially important. I think the second thing was Biden ate into Trump's margins among the white working class in certain key areas. So you look at Macomb County, home of the fabled Reagan Democrats of the 80s. Donald Trump won Macomb County by... Uh, 12 points in in 2016. And there was every expectation from his team on the ground here. And I've spent a lot of time in Macomb this year, every expectation that they would be able to juice that margin by four or five points. What happened? It went the opposite way. They lost four points. Trump only won Macomb County by eight this time around. Now, you know, that that might seem significant in the historical sweep of Macomb County elections. But again, it's at the margins. Trump was not able to grow his numbers in these areas where he thought he'd be able to grow them. And then lastly, quickly, I would just say the African-American vote that you saw in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, in Detroit, it far outpaced what Hillary Clinton was able to get four years ago. And that was another enormous factor. Tim Alberta from Politico, Claire Malone from 538, Sahil Kapoor from NBC. Really appreciate your insights. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. We'll be right back. Each 
each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. As we've been hearing, President Trump is attempting to undermine the legitimacy of the election by spreading falsehoods and filing lawsuits. For more on this and what the president's endgame is, I spoke with Tolu Olonuripa, a White House reporter for The Washington Post. The past few months have been classic Donald Trump, the same kind of personality he had as a businessman, which is sort of heads I win, tails you lose. If I win the election, it was all free and fair. If I lose, let's sow doubt in it beforehand so that we can say it was rigged. He even said the only way we lose this election is if it's rigged. And this was weeks before Election Day. So the end game, to the extent that there is one, is to sow doubt in the election. He does not want to go down in history as a loser. It's not a long, thought-out strategy of how to actually change votes or change the, the trajectory. It's really about changing the narrative and having his supporters believe that he is the winner, that he ultimately was a, a victim of you know, voter fraud or having the election stolen from him. And he's been laying the groundwork for this for a matter of months. So there's not really a broader electoral endgame here that we can see that's actually effective in terms of, you know, making him, you know, have a higher likelihood of having a second term. It's really sort of about trying to win the day, win the media narrative, and win the narrative in the minds of his supporters through history so that they don't see him as a loser, as a one-term president who was not able to get reelected. Instead, he wants to go down in the minds of his supporters as someone who fought the system and ultimately was a martyr to the system of corruption and election fraud, even though there's no evidence to, to support any of that. Talk to me about this, too. We, I, I keep reading reports and hearing reports that uh, within the White House, there are people telling the president basically that it's over, that it's not likely to, to be turned around, or at least maybe they they know this and are talking about this privately, but that the president seems unable to comprehend that. And I, I'm wondering how much of this is, you know, really about the president not, quote unquote, understanding how voting works and how much of it is, as you pointed out, just simply putting this narrative out there to save his own reputation. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how this is going to to end up. But uh, he doesn't care. I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I think the president mm-hmm. has surrounded himself in an, in an atmosphere where he only gets information that backs up his preconceived notions. The people around him, his aides, present him with highly skewed data and graphs to back up his preconceived notions on things like the coronavirus crisis. And he's increasingly um, welcomed uh, conspiracy theories throughout the course of his administration, sometimes for political convenience, but sometimes because he actually believes them or he believes that, you know, they, they are credible no matter how outlandish they might be. So part of it is the president has surrounded himself with um, people who do not provide a check on him, but instead try to feed his ego and try to give him information to back up what he already believes. And that's part of the, the, the equation here, why he believes that he could have never lost a fair election, even though polls indicated that he was likely to lose the election. And then part of it is 
the fact that he uses some of these things, some of these conspiracy theories for political end to try to you know, reach a goal of convincing his supporters uh, to believe in an alternative reality. And he uses that with great effect in, in many cases by trafficking and conspiracies on a number of different issues. And, uh, you know, as you said, it, it, it's not surprising. It should be, you know, shocking that the president would take that level of conspiracy theorizing and use it and, and target it and weaponize it against our very institution of, of the voting process. But this is something that he is willing to do when it when it comes to, you know, whether or not um, he wants to go down in history as a legitimate loser or whether or not he wants to uh, have many of the people in the country feel that he was a victim or someone who was uh, who had the election stolen from him. We also know that the president in his in his previous career, he did love litigation and suing folks or threatening to sue folks. There are a lot of uh, legal challenges out there right now uh, by the president's team and Republican officials. How long do you think this goes on? I mean, is is that part of the end game as well, that uh, just to try to keep things in the courts, um, even if they get thrown out and even if it doesn't go their way, it drags this process out and, and, and again, questions the integrity of all of it? Yeah, we're, this is really uncharted territory. We have had an election that has gone to the courts that the court ultimately decided 20 years ago with the Bush v. Gore race. But now the president and his team are trying to contest the election in multiple states, in states that are much further apart than the 537 votes that separated Florida. And it, it really would require a, a kind of massive um, legal victory on a broad scale for the president to flip the results of an election in multiple states. Uh, the president is on, on track to, um, to to lose the Electoral College and potentially by a relatively significant margin, even as he is also behind in the popular vote. So uh, the idea that this is a disputed election or the idea that voter mm -hmm. fraud could have changed the outcome is a really tall task for, for the president's legal team to try to convince uh, judges about. And it, it's really not clear clear that they have a pathway to do that, even if there is limited um, voter fraud in some cases, which, you know, they have not provided any evidence of that 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 exists. Um, there's no sense that there would be a massive conspiratorial voter fraud scheme that would have flipped multiple states that, pre that President Trump lost. So it's, it's really difficult for, to see where they see this going. We have heard from some allies of the president float this very dangerous idea of having state legislatures intervene and over override the will of the people because, you know, this idea that this election is too fraudulent, we can't trust the pop process, we can't allow the, the people's vote to carry the day. Instead, Republican-led le Republican legislatures would overtake the, the, the responsibility of assigning electors and uh, maybe give the electoral votes to President Trump, even if the people voted in a different way. It's a fringe idea, but it has gained some steam uh, among some of the president's supporters. And that may be the president's endgame, but that is so far out and so fringe that it would really be a constitutional crisis and be very dangerous for our country. And then you may see some of the president's uh, Republican allies actually speak out against it. That may be mm. a bridge too far for for a few of them. Tolu, thank you again for all you do and for joining us and, and helping us to understand where we are at this point. Really appreciate it. Thank you. On Thursday night, President Donald Trump took to the podium in the White House briefing room to do what he's been doing for months. 
attacking the legal process of voting in an attempt to lay claim to a false victory. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. This is not true. The votes being counted right now are legal. There's been no evidence of votes cast illegally. Period. End of story. Now, back in March, when it became clear that the pandemic was going to drastically alter the voting process in the United States, we set out to talk to as many election officials as we could. We wanted to understand what voting in this election would look like and perhaps more important, how changes in the process might affect the time it would take for votes to be counted. We also knew that the president's continued attacks on the integrity of the election process made it more important than ever for us to report on the facts about how this all works. This week, we reached back out to those officials to hear how they think it all went and what still needs to happen before results in their states are certified. Katie Hobbs, Arizona Secretary of State. We were here very early in the office on election day, just prepared to respond to incidents. And obviously there's a spotlight in Arizona. We were um, talking to the media and really throughout the day, we had minor reports. We were able to respond and address things and nothing major and absolutely nothing that interfered with people's ability to cast their ballot. The counties continue to finalize all the numbers and get things in order so that they can complete their official canvases 20 days after the election and get them to our office. And then we will certify those results uh, November 30th. This is Alex Padilla, Secretary of State for the most diverse state in the nation. In California, elections officials have 30 days following the election to complete their vote count and post-election audits. The Secretary of State's office gets one more week to aggregate and certify all results statewide. This election was overall very smooth across the state of California. We urged voters to vote early in order to prevent long lines on election day. And by the morning of the election, more than 12 million ballots had already been returned, the vast majority by mail. My name is Ken Lawrence. I'm a county commissioner in Montgomery County, and I'm chairman of the Montgomery County Board of Elections. Montgomery County is a suburb of Philadelphia. We had a very good election day in Montgomery County. We had 298 polling locations. Um, we had no issues. There were lines at some of the polling locations, but people were very patient. Our turnout was about 75%. That was a very high turnout for us, and we were very pleased with that. So we are done counting all of our mail-in ballots that were received by 8 p.m. on election day. It took us 41 hours to do that, and we were very pleased that we were able to get that done. We counted around the clock 24-7 to make sure that we had those ballots uh, counted as quickly and as accurately as possible. There were watchers the whole time. We had no accusations of impropriety or anything there at all. My name is Damon Sircosta. I am chair of the North Carolina State Board of Elections. Election day in North Carolina went extremely well. We had record-breaking turnout. Uh, over 75% of registered voters participated in this election. And oh, roughly 5.5 million North Carolinians showed up to make sure that their voice was heard. Uh, everything went smoothly. Our 2,661 precincts operated uh, with very few challenges or interruptions. And when those interruptions or challenges came up, our professional staff dealt with it very well. Rob, 
Pitts, Chairman, Fulton County Board of Commissioners, Fulton County, Georgia. On November 3rd, Election Day, I refer to November 3rd as the Big Dance. We had 255 polling locations. That was an increase of 91 from June. I visited on election day 30 of those uh, 255, and I can report that there were no lines whatsoever. Waiting time was from probably three minutes to 10 minutes max. I never saw a line. My name is Frank LaRose. I serve as the Ohio Secretary of State. You know, in Ohio, election day on November 3rd went quite smoothly. Of course, for us, we here at the Secretary of State's office were working with each of our county boards of elections to identify and deal with problems as they came up. And close to 4,000 polling locations were opened at 6.30 a.m. in Ohio. Those 4,000 polling locations are staffed by close to 56,000, actually just over 56,000 election day poll workers that are effectively one day uh, volunteers. And uh, in that environment, there are always gonna be things that go wrong. And there were some fun sort of anecdotes and there were some serious things that popped up, but there was nothing systemic. On election day, officials were still confronted with misinformation. Several states reported nefarious robocalls warning people about long lines at the polls and urging them to vote on Wednesday. Of course, that's the day after the election. And in Arizona, a conspiracy theory dubbed Sharpiegate took shape. Here's Secretary of State Hobbs again. There's really no merit to this conspiracy. Every single ballot that was validly cast is going to be counted, and poll workers did not give voters pens that would intentionally invalidate their ballots. Even if the tabulator isn't able to read ballots filled out with certain pens, we have a process for counting those ballots and they will be counted. I've actually spent more time the last couple of days talking about markers than I ever hope to again, but there's really no merit to this issue at all. And in Georgia, Chairman Rob Pitts was reminded that things outside of the actual administration of the election can go wrong, like a burst water pipe. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the pipe, okay, with respect to State Farm Arena and, and the impact that it had or could have had on uh, voting here in Fulton County. Well, here are the facts. There was a, a pipe burst at 6.07 a.m. on the floor above where we are scanning absentee ballots. By 8.07, the pipe had been repaired. And the good news is there was no damage to any absentee ballots and no damage to any equipment. Those are the facts. Now, what happened was because it took some two hours to repair the leak, there was a obviously a delay in the uh, scanning process of the absentee ballot. So we had to take time to get back on schedule, and we did. But there's always room for improvement. Of course, we always want to improve upon our process, and we will go back and do uh, a continuous improvement review for absentee ballots, in-person voting, and the whole election in general. We learned a lot of lessons in terms of working this election through a pandemic. And a lot of it really emphasized the work that we still have to do in terms of enfranchising disenfranchised communities. It's been a priority for my administration. A lot of those inequities were highlighted with the pandemic and continue to be in. So we'll continue to focus on those issues. 
So we invested $1.7 million in counting equipment after the primary to make sure that we could count our mail-in ballots as quickly as possible. Um, we tripled the size of our voter services office. So we're going to let people rest now, but then they can look in and we'll see what we can do better for the next election. A special thank you to all the election officials and volunteers who are working around the clock to make sure every vote is counted. In the Trump era, political polarization has reached a level not seen since the Civil War. But this hyperpartisanship didn't start with President Trump. Decades before he entered politics, it had already been bubbling below the surface. Trump's 2016 candidacy and subsequent presidential administration just revealed what some in America already knew about our deepening divide. No matter the results of the election, nobody seems likely to bridge the chasm between red and blue, at least in the short term. The 2020 election itself may not have caused the polarization we're seeing, but it has become a consequence of it. Most Americans actually have relatively overlapping policy preferences, so there's plenty of room for compromise if it were just about policy. Um, but most partisans also really hate the other side. And, mm. uh, and so that's really being driven by this increasingly um, social type of uh, association with the parties and this sort of new overlapping set of uh, social identities that are connected to the parties in a new way. Well, when we talk about this idea of identity and 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 how much more polarized we are today, there are there are some though who would argue that it's kind of a good thing because the the era where we think of as you know when in the good old days uh, post World War II when everybody got along and we had consensus, a lot of that was driven by the fact that it was um, both Democrats and Republicans ignoring race or uh, at best or at worst continuing to propagate um, a uh, systemic racism. So can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, one of the one of the aspects of the current polarization is that increasingly the Democrats and Republicans are divided around the issue of whether systemic racism and sexism exist. And so Ultimately, by having one entire political party that's arguing that systemic racism exists and it's a bad thing and, and, and needs to be addressed, that actually gives more power to the move to any movement to sort of create more equality in the U.S. and make it a more uh, representative democracy. But at the same time, there's no way that America is going to go through this process without a massive backlash. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing between the parties is this push and pull between are we going to keep our traditional social hierarchy that we've had forever, or are we going to make ourselves a more egalitarian society? And I think there really is no way to get through that kind of calmly and rationally. There's going to be this type of chaos. I think that's exactly right. And and I also want to go to this question, too, about how we, quote unquote, fix this polarization. And I, I know a lot of folks point to to politics in particular and say, we need to get rid of gerrymandering, we need to fix the campaign finance system, and we need to have easier access to voting and things like that. But at its core, I just, to me, I keep coming back to the fact that we live in a world right now with this fractured media environment, with social media, that if we don't get a hold of that, none of the changes we make to our political system 
are going to matter. Right. And I think some of the results we're seeing even just coming out of this election demonstrate that, you know, that Trump had a very, very active and enthusiastic group of voters. Um, You know, it's not that it's not that increasing turnout for everybody increased, um, you know, just progressive voters. Uh, We do have a system that's that's obviously, you know, tilted in the direction of, you know, giving power to the to to people who live in rural areas, for instance. Um, But but at the same time, yeah, I think that ultimately there's no way for us to address to address this type of polarization without actually saying, you know, Americans need to start talking to each other uh, about the legacy of of racial oppression and violence and and understanding that as a central uh, argument in question. And so when we talk about bridging this divide, though, it seems like there has to be an incentive, right? Like once where where's the incentive for political leaders to to bridge it when ultimately they aren't rewarded for that? They don't get reelected. They're not raising tons of money off of online uh, um, donors, uh, they get kind of lost. Well, that's the main conundrum for the Republican Party right now, is that, you know, their policies actually aren't, on average, very popular in the electorate. Uh, so they're sort of forced into this white identity-based politics. And that uh, that is something that they're going to have to deal with, you know, going forward if if we're ever to have sort of more peaceful discourse. Liliana, do you have any hopes that a new divided Washington might produce something more of a uh, bridge that because you have a potentially a Democratic White House, Republican Senate, Democratic House, that that could be the formula where things get fixed as opposed to one party in control? (laughs) On my most optimistic day? Okay, (laughs) yes. But I think... uh, But realistically... from what we've seen, from what we've seen in the past, I think a, a divided government right now is probably going to um, is probably going to impede a lot of this progress. Uh, it would be great to be surprised otherwise. Um, what I hear over and over again from people is, well, you know, I I watch all kinds of television shows. I flip back and forth between the different cable channels, or I have all kinds of people in my life. They have all kinds of political views, and yeah, that doesn't seem to be doing anything to help. Right. So can we kind of dig into what this is really about, how it is possible that so many people say that they think that someone who identifies as a Republican or a Democrat, someone who is different from them in their party identification, is dangerous, is not interested in protecting America or our democracy or that they are morally corrupt? Like, how does that happen? For people who are strongly identified with their party, reading media from the other side actually polarizes them more um, because they argue against it uh, in their head. And so what we've found is that people who have a lot of political information and pay a lot of attention to politics, when they're exposed to messages that benefit the other side or that harm their side, uh, they have so much information already stored in their memory to kind of counter argue against against those those messages. And so they can actually create their own counter narrative, which answers the question in a way that makes the other side look even worse. I want to kind of go uh, dig into this question 
about um, the ways in which we have been able to sort of um, not see the other people uh, who have different opinions than we do and the, the ways in which our polarization in some ways is driven by the fact that we are not interacting with people who have different social or political identities than we do. Um, and what I hear over and over again from people is, well, you know, I, I watch all kinds of television shows. I flip back and forth between the different cable channels. Or I have all kinds of people in my life. They have all kinds of political views. And yeah, that doesn't seem to be doing anything to help. <laughs> right? So... Can we kind of dig into what this is really about, how it is possible that so many people say that they think that someone who identifies as a Republican or a Democrat, someone who is different from them in their party identification, is dangerous, is not interested in protecting America or our democracy or that they are morally corrupt? Like, how does that happen? What social media did to some extent is allow allow people to kind of curate their own sources of information and and also to be exposed to a lot more misinformation. Mm. Uh, you know, that's that's an issue that social media companies are trying to deal with to, to differing degrees. But um, but when you can kind of allow yourself to be exposed to false information, you know, that satisfies your need for your party to be the best, then that kind of information is something you might seek out um, because it start, because it feels really good to hear good things about your party and to hear bad things about the other party. But Liliana, how much of that is people doing that consciously, right? Curating consciously, which you do when you friend someone or unfriend someone, say, on Facebook. And how much of it is the actual business of these um, platforms the algorithms, et cetera, which keep people in a in this permanent bubble, right? You click on these certain kinds of stories, you're going to get fed those stories, you're going to get fed those videos, and it just keeps going. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't think that people do this intentionally. Um, and and you're right that the the way the algorithm works is that if you really like a story that says your party's great and the other party's awful, you're probably going to get another story that says that. Uh, and so it's this sort of self-reinforcing cycle. But, but you know, it, it is relying on, the algorithms are relying on human nature. You know, they know, mm. the people who program these algorithms know what a person is hungry for after they, after they consume, you know, one thing. They understand, they better understand what they're hungry for next time and they give it to them. Uh, and, and, and for some platforms like YouTube, we've seen that it, that every, every next thing they give them is slightly more extreme. So you can go from, you know, watching a video about a recipe to watching a white supremacist video in not very many links, you know, just because the algorithm is pushing you to more and more extreme types of, of content. I also want to get to this idea that you hear all the time, right? Well, both sides are doing it. And so if both sides agree to stop doing all these things that, we don't like, we're all going to come together to find solution to the problem. What are people really saying there when they're talking about that? Like who, what evidence is there that there is this sort of both sides doing this terrible stuff? So if they both agree to disarm, 
we can bridge this divide. Right. And so, you know, part of it, well, one thing I can tell you that both sides are doing to an equal extent is believing that the other side is evil and believing that the other side is a threat to the United States. Those both parties believe that to the same extent. Um, but the both both parties doing, you know, kind of um, misinformation and, uh, you know, uh, you know, identity threat based messaging. That's not exactly both sides. And and there is, you know, we have this norm of bipartisanship in academia, in journalism, you know, across the way that we are supposed to be talking about politics that really encourages us to give a lot of credit to both sides for trying their best to be, you know, pro-democracy and uh, engage in engage in responsible governing and compromise. Um, but that's not what we've seen from the, the Republican Party at all, certainly during the Obama administration, um, certainly during the Trump administration. So, so the, you know, the idea that both are are equally committed to democracy. I think that is that's the major issue is that they're mm. both parties are not equally committed to democracy. Can we go back and look at this historically? Because you know, as you said, there's there's this sort of um, romantic romanticization of the good old days and this sort of post World War II era where everybody got along, and that's what politics is supposed to look like, and that's how Washington is supposed to work. But it seems like that was more of an aberration in our history than uh, something that is, quote unquote, normal. Most of our theories are actually created out of this really, you know, kind of peaceful time in terms of American uh, partisanship. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the issues, I think, that, you know, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, one of the issues that is really crucial in understanding the way the parties have interacted across American history is really the issue of race. And I don't think that it can be overstated. Um, you know, that the last time the parties were really truly divided along the lines of racial policy, if you can call slavery racial policy, um, was, was before the civil war. And that, you know, that's a rift that could not be, that could not be, you know, covered up. And in fact, it was a contested election that was the beginning of the civil war. Um, and, and then in the 1960s, we also had a lot of social unrest um, and we had a big push for civil rights. But at that time, those the civil rights uh, um, legislation wasn't entirely partisan. There were Republicans who were pro-civil rights legislation. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of Democrats who were anti-civil rights legislation, particularly Southern white Democrats. Uh, and so we didn't have this ability for every election to be a competition over whether we're going to have an egalitarian democracy. Uh, the elections were about a lot of different things and some of them were just boring policies. And so you can have a peaceful election over boring policies. But once our elections start to be about who gets to be the highest status people in the country, is it, is it always gonna be white men? Uh, you know, have we gone far enough in, in creating a more egalitarian society? Do we have a representative democracy right now based on our, what, our, what America looks like? Um, those are the types of questions that you put them into a, into a, a kind of conflict, like an election, and that becomes really, really fraught. Well, Liliana Mason, I really appreciate you taking all this time to talk with me about this. It's my pleasure. This is a, this is a great conversation. Thanks. And here's one more thing from me. The political profession. 
No other career as prosaic has been glamorized more. In movies and on TV, everyone who works for or as a politician is beautiful and smart and ambitious. All are doing super important work that's changing the world. Even the interns are drafting amendments. In real life, of course, politics is messy. And more important, it's pretty boring. For every election night balloon drop victory party, there are a million days filled with crushingly tedious work, like voter contact and fundraising and town hall meetings filled with cranky and angry constituents. But as we learned this week, it's the people who do the non-glamorous work, those who spend almost every single day of their entire career in relative ambiguity, who help keep our democratic institutions steady. I'm talking about the elected officials, poll workers, volunteers, and office staff who ensured that this election, an election taking place in the middle of a pandemic and with record turnout, was conducted as fairly, smoothly, and judiciously as possible. They are doing this work under great duress and stress. They continue to do their job even as the President of the United States, without any evidence, takes to the White House briefing room to question their integrity. When this election's over, these folks aren't going to get a sweet cable TV gig or their own podcast. Instead, they're going to go back to their offices and prepare for the next election. For all of you who are cynical or anxious about the sturdiness of the guardrails protecting our democratic institutions, look no further than the local officials in charge of voting. They are not bowing to pressure from the president. They are not abandoning their posts for fear of political reprisal. They're doing their jobs and doing them well. At the end of the day, it's regular people who are responsible for our democracy, and the regular people are saving it. That's all for us today. A quick shout out to the amazing team that makes this show. Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, Meg Dalton, Jake Howitt, Vince Fairchild, Polly Arungu, David Gable, and our boss, Lee Hill. Also, you can send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.